Our Father in heaven, we do praise you and we recognize that you are worthy of all praise and adoration. All that we could give all the years of our life for 10,000 lifetimes, 10,000 worlds full of worshipers would not be enough to satisfy the demands for you to be praised. You are glorious, Lord. We thank you also for saving us. We thank you for sending Christ to die. We thank you that even tonight as we gather, that we are not separated from your love, from our Savior, that it is in the presence of your very Spirit that we worship you. And so we pray that you'd help us now. We pray that you would, you would open our minds to understand your word. You'd open our hearts, Lord, to believe the truth. That we would be increasingly transformed. We pray, O oh God, that the gospel would be clear tonight. Have mercy on us. Please do the work for which you sent your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, friends, the text that we're going to look at tonight is in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I, uh, I hadn't planned on this, but since I did lead in singing just a minute ago and I was trying to sing unusually loud, I probably am going to need a little bit of water. Uh, if somebody, there is some water in the closet right by Pat's desk in the office. If somebody would be willing to grab some water for me, I'm sorry about that, brothers. I should have warned you in advance, but I don't want to run out of gas here. <clears throat> uh, the text that we're going to give our attention to tonight, it's really just part of a verse. It is, uh, thank you, Frank. Oh, it's very cold. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's part of a verse. It's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. And the Scriptures say this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now, the part of the verse that we are going to... Thank you, Tony, so much. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Thank you. It is, a, it is abundance that I've been blessed with. Uh, the part of the verse that we're going to give our attention to is the central part. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Uh, many of you know that it is very hard to make something complex simple. Those of you who are teachers, like George, uh, those of you who have taught in any circumstance, communicated, which is everybody here, it is difficult to take a complicated idea, a profound idea, and communicate it in a simple and clear and understandable way. Uh, simplicity is deceptive in that way. It seems like it's something easy, but it's actually very difficult to communicate complicated things in a simple fashion. Those of you, those of you who are, are doctors, you know probably in communicating with patients about diagnoses, about prescription, it's, 
it's difficult to communicate what's going on sometimes because it is complex and it needs to be made simple. Um, I have increasingly in recent years the work of preaching and preparing sermons to preach uh, is a work of making things more simple, more clear, more understandable. Uh, I think when I first uh, took homiletics classes in Bible college, I was understanding the work of preparing messages as, you know, sort of adorning the truth with all kinds of fascinating things that I had to say, which is exactly the opposite, really, of what it ought to be. The idea is to strip things down so that the truth is clear, so that the truth is plain and is simple, and for somebody like, like me to get out of the way so the Bible can speak for itself in the plainest way possible. So I spend a lot of my time in preparation thinking, how can this be more clear? How can this be more simple? How can this be more plain and understandable? And, uh, and sometimes I find my intellect taxed mightily in trying to make things simple and understandable. Now, I share all that with you because we look at this text tonight, and I think it is yet another demonstration of the glory of the divine mind behind the gospel message, that it can be so simple. That the gospel message, the gospel that is so profound, that has impact on so many levels for all eternity, everywhere the implications continue. Yet it can be communicated so simply as this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You think about the gospel, you think about all that is contained, all that is implied in the gospel. You think about God's purposes in election, you think about justification, you think about adoption, sanctification, glorification. The gospel, the, the redemptive work that Christ has done on the cross, the fact that God Himself would promise Him and send Him and exalt Him and will one day make all things new in Him, I mean, that touches everything in creation, in reality, everywhere and for all time. The impact of the gospel is endless. And in fact, it will in a sense be studied for all time. We will marvel for all eternity at the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God in the gospel. There is no end to how profound the gospel is. And yet it is so simple. A child can understand it. Now, those of you who have smartphones, you're probably thinking, well, children can sometimes understand things that I can't understand. I've got to get my grandchildren to show me how to call someone. You know. But no, this most simple of all, this most profound of all messages can be communicated in, in every culture, in every time, in every place, education or no education. There's a profound simplicity about it. Here it is expressed in just nine words. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And tonight, for the next few minutes, uh, my plan is for us to just consider this simple gospel message, uh, to consider some of the profound implications of it, uh, to remember again what it is that our God has done that can be expressed in nine words, and yet for eternity future, will be the focus of praise and adoration. The first thing we see about the gospel here 
is that it is a message about someone. The Apostle Paul says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Who is this Christ Jesus? Well, the word that Paul uses there, Christ, many of you are well aware that that word means Messiah. It means anointed one. In the Scriptures, especially in the, in the Gospels, it becomes very clear that the Christ is himself the divine king. He is, in fact, God Himself. You remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed, I guess that next morning when He was on trial, and they asked Him if He was the Christ, and He acknowledged, yes, I am. They recognized that it was blasphemy. Because to claim that He was the Christ was to claim equality with God. This one spoken about in the Gospel, this Christ, He is the self-existent, Eternal God who has always been and always will be. He is the author and the sustainer and the source of all life. He is the ruler and the judge of all that exists and all of us. It is a relatively common human experience. Um, I think probably most of us have had shades of it at some time to have a, a moment of surprising existential crisis. That moment where you stop and you think, what is the, all of this about? Where did this come from? Where did I come from? And why am I here? You may not think in those exact terms, but some of you probably have had that experience before where you start to wonder about those things. I've shared with you before, one of the first times that I ever began to ask questions like that and think about those things. I was a teenager and I was, I was hiking on the Appalachian Trail near Mount Rogers. I was with a Boy Scout troop. And as I was looking up at the trees, as I was looking at the rhododendron all around, as I was, as I was looking at the blackberry and blueberry bushes and the mountains there in the Grayson Highlands, it started to dawn on me, where did all of this come from? What is all of this? I did not decide to be here. I did not create myself. Here I am. What's the story behind all this? What's the origin of it all? And why? Why am I here walking on this mountainside in southwestern Virginia? Now, we are living at a, a relatively unique time in human history in that it is a conventional wisdom that answers to those questions are uh, that there is no purpose. There is no reason. Uh, it's, it's relatively unique in the scope of human history that, that so many people would say, well, it's obvious it's all a big accident. There is no reason behind existence. There is no reason behind the world and everything in it. There is no meaning. It is the the product of chance and chaos. It just happened. And there isn't really a purpose behind it at all. You just happened to exist because lightning hit primordial ooze at just the right time, and the ooze was there because of, well, we're not sure exactly why, but there it was. And fast forward several millennia, and, and here you are. And soon you'll be gone. 
from darkness into darkness, and that is all. So enjoy it while it lasts. I mean, that is the conventional wisdom of our age, isn't it? Now, I think probably, like many of you all, I have a hard time looking around at the world that we are in and coming to that conclusion. My wife and I were in the Grayson Highlands again recently hiking for a few days, and uh, I saw those mountains again. I, I saw the grass and all the wild ponies that are there along the trail, and I saw those rhododendron again. And boy, it's hard to look at that and say, wow, what chaos and chance. You know? It's hard to see the hummingbirds on the flowers and say, what a random thing is this right here, that this, that this bird would be here, that these butterflies would be lighting here. What a strange and bizarre, chaotic world we live in. It didn't, didn't strike me like that. It struck me as a beautiful and, in fact, orderly thing. In fact, a, a great work of art. Not chaos and chance at all. And friends, that's not just a matter of my perception. The Scriptures are very clear that the world is not the product of chaos and chance. That the world is not the product of, of random events over an extraordinary long amount of time. But rather, it is the product of a great mind. It is the product of a great power. It was made. And it is sustained. And it is ruled. By more than just a power, a person. That there is a God who is in heaven. And that God is actually someone. The Apostle Paul doesn't just call the Lord Christ here. He calls Him Christ Jesus. And many of you are well aware that, that Jesus is a version of the name Joshua, which is a relatively common name. It was then and it is today. Are there any Joshuas in here? There's one. Does anybody here know anyone named Joshua? Or have a family member? Very common. Lots of Joshua's around. It was the same in Jesus' day when He walked the earth. The point being that Jesus was someone. The Lord God Himself, the Creator of the universe, He has a name. He is a He. As our brother spoke about in, at some length this morning as he was preaching. He's a person. The one who is eternal. The one who is infinite. The one who is all-powerful and wise, the creative force behind the universe that we live in. Yet He has a mind, and He has a heart. Not a heart that beats in that sense, but in the sense that He, he feels, He thinks. The Scriptures are clear. He rejoices. He grieves. He desires. He is like us in that way. He is a person, the God who is there. Well, really, we are like Him. We're not imagining Him to be like us. He has created us in His image. And He has made us in little what He is in large in order that we might glorify Him by knowing Him and knowing Him as we know one another. In the same way that we can know one another, friends, God who is a person, 
in a sense, can be known. And this God exists now. He has always existed. He will always, and He exists at this very moment. Christ Jesus, the divine King who is personal and can be known. Now Paul goes on. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world. Because the gospel is not just a message about who He is. It is a message about what He has done. When Paul says He came into the world, he is referring, at least in part, to His incarnation. The fact that at a certain time in human history, Jesus Christ, who is God Himself, who is the Creator and Author of all things, who is eternal, He entered into His creation, into time and space itself. And not only did He enter into creation, but He entered into creation as part of His creation, as a human being. God became one of us. As John chapter 1, verse 14 puts it, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And friends, this is profound. Don't let the fact that we, we celebrate it year after year after year at Christmas in an Advent season deceive you. It is a wild and shocking thing that God would enter into time and space and be one of us. That He would come and would walk on the earth. That He would come and take on flesh in order that He who is personal might relate to us that we might look at Him. And those who walked with Him would see Him face to face. He became a human being. And, and not only did He become a human being, He became a human child, you remember. He did not immediately materialize you know, in some mighty superhuman form. But He was born in a manger under apparently, to those around, dubious circumstances. And He lived his life on the earth in similar circumstances. He, he did not walk around demanding to be worshipped as a king in human terms, but he did walk as a servant and lived life as a servant. Not only did he enter into time and space as a human being and live as a servant, but he, he was treated by those human beings around him by and large uh, as an outcast. And he experienced a significant amount of distress in his life. The world into which God came as a human being was not a particularly pleasant place in one sense. It was a glorious place. You know, I, I, again, I, I presume that the Grayson Highlands uh, were there 2,000 years ago on the other side of the earth from where Jesus walked. And there were probably butterflies and blueberry bushes. And I guess there weren't wild ponies then. That came later. But they, it was beautiful. And the world is, in one sense, it is a glorious place. It is a fascinating place. And people can be wonderful and glorious. But people can also be horrible, can't they? The world can also be a miserable place filled with profound pain. I think, again, those of you who are doctors 
I've probably seen some of that pain firsthand again and again and again. The world is a place where we have, we have things like symphonies and we also have things like cancer. Where we have people willing to make great sacrifices for one another, but we also have people willing to inflict great harm on one another. And the Lord Jesus Christ, when He came and entered the world, it was a glorious but twisted and corrupt place that He entered into. Sin and death, pain and misery were part of His experience because it's part of the human experience. And all of that, friends, as we know, as the Scriptures testify clearly, was the result of humanity's rebellion against Him, the author of life. Our rebellion, our hatred of Him. He who is the source of every good thing. He who is the source of all glory and peace and life and strength. Our first parents rebelled against Him and hated Him. But but all of us after them did likewise. It was not unique to them. Uh, we, with them, they as the heads of our race, but we in our own experience, uh, likewise have rebelled against Him. We have fallen short of righteousness. And I don't mean just by our own imaginary human standards. I mean... I mean, the real standards of righteousness that God Himself gives. Uh, it is easy for us to come up with our own standards of what is right and what is good and to judge ourselves by them. But those standards don't hold up under much scrutiny. I was having a conversation with a woman in my neighborhood just a few weeks ago. and We were talking about politics. And in talking about politics, we began talking about sexuality, uh, gender identity. I began to talk about uh, homosexuality and same-sex marriage, and she was asking my views about these things, and I, I told her my views about these things, what the Scriptures say, uh, that, that, hom that homosexuality is a sin. And she said, well, that's not very progressive of you. And I said, no, it is not very progressive of me. She said, so the, do, you think, do you think people go to hell for being homosexuals? I said, well, I think sinners, apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, go to hell. And she said, well, that's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty dark view of the world. I said, do you believe that there's such a thing as eternal hell? And she said, well, yeah, I guess I do. I said, who do, you think, who do you think goes there? She said, murderers, thieves. And I said, what kind of thieves? And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, like tax evasion thieves? Or like bank robber thieves? Like 14-year-old boys who steal a candy bar from 7-Eleven thieves? What kind of thieves? And she said, well, I don't know. Definitely murderers, though. And I said, just people who actually murder other people or people who want to murder other people? And she said, well, I don't know. I won't tell you more about our conversation. We kind of went on and on. 
But you see my point. When left to our own devices, our own imagination, our own standards, we can't figure out what constitutes righteousness and unrighteousness. But the Lord God has made it very clear that submission to Him and His standards is righteousness. And friends, that standard we have all fallen short of. If you want to say that thieves and murderers are the ones that belong in the lake of fire, well, I have to confess, I would be counted among the thieves and murderers if you want to get down, get down to it. If you want to talk about taking what doesn't belong to you, you want to talk about deception and all the forms of lying that are there. You want to talk about murdering someone's reputation with your words or, or murdering them in your heart with your desires. The seed is right there, friends. And I am guilty of it, and I think if you're honest with yourself, you are as well. And the very same standards that you might at one point say, that's wickedness, under other circumstances will have to confess, that's wickedness. This is what's wrong with the world. This is, why, this is what explains why it is such a glorious and yet corrupted and twisted place was made by God and His wisdom and His goodness, but oh, something has gone bad wrong. We have rebelled against Him. And all of creation, Romans 8 says, was subjected to futility. All of it, all of us, there is this twist and corruption that has come in in our rebellion against God. And this is the world that Jesus Christ came into. This is the world that He entered into. And of course, he who is God was not received with open arms by the world. Like John chapter 1 says, the, the world hated him. I mean, this is the first sin that humanity would hate the God that made us and exalt ourselves above him. So, of course, when he comes in the flesh, he received consistent treatment. He willingly came into this world and he was despised. He came not just as a child and a servant, but he came to willingly be counted among criminals. He came to willingly go to the cross to be executed as a criminal. Friends, he who is life himself willingly gave himself to death and really poured out his life there to die. You read those last few chapters of any one of the Gospels, and it can feel overwhelming, the things that the Lord Jesus went through in the flesh. When you think about the betrayal of His disciples, some of you all know the pain of what it feels like to be betrayed. You think of those that abandoned Him. You think about the false accusations. You think about Him keeping His mouth shut during those trials. Remembering that all of this, He had come to serve and to save these very people that were causing Him to suffer like this. You think about what He endured in the flesh and you remember that it is not just in the flesh that He suffered, but He was subjecting Himself to the wrath of God in our place. The Lord Jesus did not just skim over the horrors of the world that we live in. He came into it in all of its depth and even went to the grave Himself. He who was so high willingly became so low. Now think about that, friends, just in passing here. 
Think about the tender heart of God who would be willing to draw near to us in a place like this, in lives like this. I mean, you probably have felt what it's like to recoil from somebody else because of the way that they live or the way that they are or the potential of getting sucked into the mess that they're a part of. I mean, I've experienced that. To recoil from your fellow man. And I'm a sinner. Oh, but Jesus Christ looks down on the world and He does not recoil in horror. He does not shrink back from those who rebel against Him and hate Him. But rather, He willingly comes. He willingly comes and knits Himself into the human race and He willingly comes and gives Himself over to the grave itself, to death. And why did He do so? This is the last thing that Paul says in these nine words. Christ Jesus came into the world. Why did He do so? He came in to save sinners. Jesus' crucifixion was not just a tragic accident. It was not just an unfortunate turn of events or terrible circumstances. Jesus Himself is not just a sad victim of the awful state of the world. But His crucifixion is very much the plan of God. This is what the Apostle Peter makes very clear in Acts chapter 2. He was given up according to the plan of God. But what kind of plan is this? What kind of plan is it that God Himself would come and give Himself over to death? What kind of salvation is this? That the author of life would come into a corrupted world and be overwhelmed by it, be overcome by it. Why would He do this? Well, friends, the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world and submitted to a criminal's death on the cross because He was doing so as a substitute for condemned sinners in order that we might be forgiven and we might live. The misery that we have known in this life and that we see around us in the world, it is just punishment for the rebellion against God that we are guilty of. And in fact, it is only the beginning of just punishment for rebellion against God. What is the right consequence of having forsaken life? It is death. What is the right consequence of having forsaken everything good, all light? It is darkness. It is suffering. The justice of a holy God against sinners demands not just that we would be miserable for a time here on the earth, but that eternal hell would be our end. To be cut off eternally from every good thing that has its source in God. The just punishment for our sins is that God Himself would condemn us. And how can God save, save us from Himself, though? That's the question. If God Himself is the one whose justice condemns us, if He is the judge and He is the executioner, 
And in fact, He is the offended party against whom we have sinned. How can we be saved? How can He rescue us from Himself? How can He snatch us out of His own hand? Well, this is the mystery of the Gospel. This is the wisdom of the Gospel. And this is the profound simplicity of it. He would give Himself over to the condemnation that we deserve. You think of the right wrath of God, justice for sin, as this huge, think about a huge dam, holding back just an incredible amount of water. And there we are standing at the foot of it. And the dam is just the patience of God. There is a time coming where we will suffer for our sins. There is a time coming when justice will come. What the Lord Jesus does at the cross is He steps between us and that great flood that is coming. And He absorbs that wrath in Himself. He absorbs that condemnation in Himself. He who is God, who humbled Himself to walk among us, He receives the full wrath of God for His people and suffers it at the cross. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. He came to die in our place. And rising and proclaiming forgiveness for all who would come and would trust in Him. This is the most profound thing that we could talk about. The fact that God would do this, and He would really do it in time and space. And given how significant it is what He has done, it makes perfect sense, friends, that 2,000 years later, we would be gathering together week after week, not only once on Sunday, but twice on Sunday to talk about it. And then maybe get together later on in the week and talk about it again. And again and again. And in fact, we would dedicate ourselves as a church to making sure that there are people and generations following after us who will be faithful to be entrusted with this gospel message, that they would tell it to others. That they would declare this truth of what the living God has done for us. And you don't have to have a PhD to understand it. It is a gloriously simple thing. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The question tonight, friends, is do you know that? You you maybe have known the facts of it. I mean, here we are in what you might call the, the remains of the Bible Belt. Surely you've heard something about this message before. Surely you might have even said, well, sure, that's true. Oh, but friends, have you put your trust in this Christ who gave Himself for sinners? Paul says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I do believe that the Apostle Paul saw himself as the foremost. But it is sinners that Christ came to save. Do you see yourself in that category? 
Do you see yourself as needing the Savior? Have you brought your sins under the blood of the Lord Jesus that was shed so that we might live? This is a glorious thing that we're speaking of here. As we attempt to walk by faith and not by sight, it is sometimes difficult to appreciate the glory of it. But friends, it's worth giving our attention to. It's worth putting it before us and our children again and again and again and declaring again and again and reading again and singing about again and calling upon this Lord. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is the gospel and this is all of our hope. Let's, let's pray together now. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank You for coming into the world to save sinners. We thank You, O Christ, for giving Yourself uh, so freely, so willingly to the cross uh, that we who have no business calling upon You as friends, that we might do so in real hope and faith. Thank You, O Lord, for loving us and for having a tender heart towards us. And thank you for accomplishing that which we ourselves could never do in our salvation. Thank you for this rescue that you give us. We pray, O oh Lord Jesus, that you would strengthen our faith. Help us to trust in you wholly with our whole hearts. We pray this, Christ, in your name. Amen.